Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I am your host, Finn Melanson, and this is the second episode of our coaching call series. For those that did not listen to the first episode, I have partnered with Ryan Gelfi, who is the head coach at Trails and Tarmac, to train together for the Canyons 100K in late April. We're doing all of the training in public, which means that the training log and our monthly coaching conversations will be publicly available. In this particular episode, we recap the first month of training together and talk specifically about goal setting, training partners, what we are doing to prepare for the demands of the course. And towards the end of the show, we also dive into some industry specific topics like recommended athlete load and what it would look like to coach a co-located trail team. I hope you enjoy. It's good to have you back. I thought the first one was good to set the table for our plans. And now that we have a, a month of training under our belt, maybe we can start there. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this past month. I think that some of the ideas that you came up with as we formulated this podcast series and how it can affect your own training, I think it's been really good. This might be one of the best months of training that you've put in, in a lot of respects. Like the consistency and the workouts have been so good. I'm excited to talk about them. Me too. There, there's a part of me that wishes I was internally motivated. And I think to some extent I am, but there's no question that a lot of the work that I've put in has been greatly aided by the fact that at least one or two people are watching this and I don't want to let them down and it's all public out there. And I want to be known as somebody that can follow through. So here we are external motivation leading the way. Well, I don't know this. It's not like you needed that entirely. It's not like before you did nothing and now you're doing everything. I think it was just harder for you to execute at like closer to a hundred percent sort of level, you know, like there'd be things that would happen. And I think this just little extra bump, especially for the, the workouts and like just being dialed on those showing up and being really prepared and, and then really going forward on. Anyways, we'll get into that. It's been really cool to see. And I think it's a great experiment because I'm always looking for what motivates you like you the individual and just like how that can apply across other people and so this is a fun experiment because it's not common like you don't commonly have this as a setup yeah maybe the first place we can dive in and i'll just state it for the record there have been a lot of people on instagram and on twitter and via direct email they've been saying look i listened to the first episode i noticed that you didn't lay out any particular goal for the canyons 100k you know do you have a time goal do you have a place goal how are you thinking about that and I think this is a good place to dive in because I think you've mentioned this in the past, but there are all sorts of different types of goals. There's outcome goals, there's performance goals, there's process goals. I'll ask you first, do you think it's important to have a time in mind and a place goal in mind, or is it more important to think about something else? I think it's hard for most competitive types of people not to have one of those goals in mind. Like they're just going to come into your brain over and over, you know, they just come out of the ether and you can't, you almost couldn't avoid them. Like they're going to come at you. I don't know that they're always productive. Like to say, okay, you're going to try to break, I don't know, let's pick a time, 10 and a half hours or something or 10 hours, or you're going to try to be in the top 10 at Canyons. I mean, the time goal is a little bit more in your control than the place, right? So I think when people have place goals, which like, you know, at a golden ticket race, there's really objective like ideas that, you know, certain people might have to say, oh, I need to get top three because you get this thing. But you don't have much control over A, who shows up, and then, you know, of course, B, what they do. You can have a great race and miss this goal that you've come up with. 
I mean, they did. They put the doggone entrance list back on. Back up, they, yeah. They took it off for a while. And if you look at that list, you're just like, I mean, both this race and Black Canyons, which is funny, they both have the name Canyons, but <laughs> those are both amazing races this year for your spring American ultras. And the depth is really, really good. <laughs> so it's hard to say like what a good place goal would even be for you. Or for like, I'm also running the race. I have a couple other, you know, really good athletes running the race. And like, right. I can say for sure that top 10 is going to be really hard for most people. There's some people that are super high end, but I think right. for most of us, top 10 is a good goal and you can have a great race and get 16th. It's hard to say. Right. Um, but I think if we get too caught up on those, you can get into the race and things can pretty quickly unravel when things are not like going how you played it out in your mind or how these different goals are like if those are what are really motivating you then I think even if you are you could potentially have a good race sometimes at mile 20 you're like oh my gosh I'm in 40th and people look better and you know like those those goals can demotivate you even if like maybe had you not been worried about it you might have ended up passing a ton of people later on if you kept your head in a better spot I think obviously you want to perform well, like we know this and what that means. I don't know for sure. Cause like we we're seeing your trajectory in terms of just training and these objective measures and workouts, we're seeing things really improving for you. So like, I also don't know what things are going to look like for you by April. Like these are other questions we don't know. So it's like hard to say about what our goal should be. I'll say a couple of things. The first thing is as of late, the process goals have been really important for me because I just think I want to be known as somebody first and foremost, that reliably shows up to do the hard work. I'm, I'm there every, whatever it is, Wednesday or Thursday to put in a good speed workout. I'm there, even if like mentally, I'm not with it showing up on Sunday, it's 20 degrees outside. I haven't had my coffee yet, but I still got to go bang out 20 miles or three hours time on feet. I want to be known as the person that shows up independent of what my motivation is on that particular day. And yeah. that's why I've been really high on the process goals, but at the same time, and I should say this because I've been trying to call bullshit and other people, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't think about like where I'm going to finish in the race. And I know you mentioned this on, on a podcast we did before the coaching call where you said, if Salt Lake City isn't like the trail running Mecca of, of the US in a couple of years, you guys mess something up. And like a part of that to me is like, I got to go and rep Salt Lake City and Canyons. And I got to show that I'm the product of this amazing training environment. So I'd be lying if I said, even though I have no record to back it up, especially in terms of performances, I would love to be on like the back end of that top 10, or I'd love to be in contention at least all day. And I'd love to be up there with all the guys that I'm training with, but at least until now, I don't have evidence to show for that. You have this famous line delusions of grandeur. I think I'm still in that phase, but yeah, I definitely think about those things. I think about time goals, but as I've gained some wisdom over the years, the process goals have become top of mind and in order to do those things, I need to become the person that shows up in the micro activities. Yeah, that's right. I guess to back up even another step, it's like, what is pro- what do we mean by process goal versus outcome goal? Probably a lot of people know what that means, but obviously outcome goals are the end result, whether that's a time or a place. Did you get second place or whatever? Something that you don't necessarily have control over in the immediate moment that you're living through. And let's just say during the race, right? Like forget about the training part. That's a whole nother topic, but like in the race itself, if you can make your goals process oriented, meaning things that you're controlling right now, like your pacing choices, your mental choices, whether that's like focusing on 
pushing or focusing on holding back, focusing on relaxing, or if it's fueling correctly, just making sure that you're planning ahead. Anyways, like those process goals are things that like A, are going to lead to the result, whatever it is, uh, whatever it ends up being. And there are things that you actually can do something about, which is the, you know, this is the product of all of those, you know, decisions and, you know, the decisions to be tough and to stay mentally engaged and to push through those middle miles. Like all those are what lead to your results. So you have to focus on those process goals, I think, in order to have your best result. Like thinking about the result does nothing. <laughs> thinking about stuff you can control is what we should all probably be striving for. And we can have their goals like in, in our mind, or we can have set it beforehand or whatever, but that can't be like what we're thinking about too much in the middle. And it's hard not to, I think I'll be running. I'm like, okay, what place am I in? How do I get, how do I get up? But all that stuff, it's like, it might help motivate you, especially if things are going well, but it shouldn't be the only thing you're leaning on for what is going to motivate you and what you're going to be thinking about during the race. So just to, just so I don't get shit when this thing goes live to go on the record. Yes, it is true. I, I am human. I think about the performance goals and I'd love to be somewhere in that back half of that top 10. No, I don't have the record to back it up. Yes, I am working hard. And at least until then I'm going to be zeroed in on those process goals. And here's the thing, because I'm zeroed in on those process goals, even if those other types of goals don't come to fruition, I'm satisfied because I can just go to sleep at night knowing that I tried my best. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Because if you threw like the top hundred trail runners in the country at canyons, right? Like then the top 10 might, it might be more like, well, the top 25 is the new top 10. This is how it works. You know, this is what happens eventually. It's like the spread gets tighter, you know, first to 10th is now, it's more like first to 25th is the same spread that used to be first to 10th, right? Like, you know, as the races get, you know, more competition and deeper competition. Like we're, I mean, I think we're seeing that there's tons of names on this list that are, I don't even know, but some of the people when you're like, Oh, here's all these Salt Lake city guys. And I'm like, yeah, like I don't really know them personally, but I'm sure some of them are very good. And a few people will do really well who you've never even heard of. So like, it's a pretty deep list. I think. Yeah. There's at least six guys on that list who are from Salt Lake city. I'm affiliated with, I'm friends with, and they crush me day in and day out. So that's six guys already that deserve to be above us anyways. Um, well, I like that you're putting yourself out there. I always do the same thing, or at least I have generally over my life of running. I I'll say, yeah, like I want to do X, Y, or Z. I usually don't get it, but that's yeah. fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good to, to think that you're capable of big things and do the work and then go for try. Right. And as a podcaster, I can't criticize people for beating around the bush and then do the same thing myself. I got to be in lockstep with what I'm saying should change. <laughs> All right. Good. Well, I like the goal. I like, I think it's ambitious. I think top 10 goal for you is a good high end ambitious goal and it's fun. It'll be fun to chase. And even if there's probably way more than 10 people, obviously whose pedigrees are better than yours on this list, but it doesn't really matter because the truth is it's a hundred kilometers and it's a super hard course, which I know we were considering talking about the course some more. And there's so many variables that like, if you have a really good race for you, there's a lot of better runners you're going to beat. <laughs> That's just fact. You know, when I say better, right? Yeah. People who are objectively faster have like better results at shorter distances, you know, might, you know, destroy you in a three by 10 minute hill workout, but it's a hundred K. Right. I think this is actually a pretty good point to talk about the course. Now that we're two and a half months out from the race, 10, 11, 12 weeks out, what are the types of workouts and just overall work you plan on having me do 
to get ready for the course. And for example, why am I doing the workouts that I'm going to be doing in the month of February versus the workouts that I was doing in January? Have the benefits or the adaptations that you're looking to get out of me different month on month? Yeah. Initially this first month, I really wanted to see a good amount of shorter, flatter, faster running. I wanted to see your running economy improving. And in the winter, I know you have access as to on the, on the flat side of things, whether it's at Liberty park or, you know, there's flatter stuff, you can get on it and, you know, you have these workout partners. And I think that's something that you have, you know, that you can improve a lot at. And you have, and some of these workouts have really been, I don't know, we want to call them breakthrough workouts, but you've really been able to put yourself in a different sort of realm when it comes to like, not just like yours, because you're a very fast guy. Like you have a, your power output. Like if you do, if we put you on short hill strides or 200, 300 meters sort of high and then like super fast intervals, that's always been a strength of yours, but it's like that middle ground. Those like cruise intervals or tempo intervals, stuff that's like, you know, 5k pace, 10k right. pace, pace, like stuff in that realm. Not to say that you're bad at it, but it's an area that I thought you could improve. And I think that we can leverage that as we get into more specific types of workouts, longer, longer hill climbing type workouts. When I say tempo, I mean, it can mean a lot of different sort of, there's a range of what you might call tempo, but if you like apply it from the roadside, say things between half marathon pace and the slowest like marathon pace or one hour to two and a half hour sort of race pace. So like fairly intense, but we're going to start lengthening them out and, you know, getting you bigger volume workouts and, and really building your aerobic engine and more terrain as opposed to doing as much on flat. But I, I like to build that flat foundation first. And like, cause it does make you like a more efficient runner than just always running, you know, hill, 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 hill. And the Canyons course is hilly. Obviously it's, they claim 15,000. I'm looking at Cole's from last year, his Strava. Cole, um, Cole Watson. Cole Watson. Yeah. I coach him. He's also been a trails and tarmac coach anyways, but yeah, he ran this race last year. I think he got fourth or fifth, probably fifth. But when I look at courses, I don't usually go to the race website. I mean, I will, but I often will go and look at Strava's cause it's more informative to me. Like you can see like their grade adjusted paces at different time, which will show you like how technical stuff is. Sometimes you could be like, Oh yeah, mile six, you know, there's, you know, you can, if, if someone's like running 630, 630, 630 pace, and then there's like an eight minute in there, they either stopped or you can see if the course gets more right. technical sometimes. Anyway, so I pull up their Strava's to dive into the detail a little bit more, but yeah, this is a course that's net, that's a net 4,000 feet uphill, which is significant. It's a much more uphill than downhill course, right? Which would make it like maybe only nine or 10,000 feet of descending and 13 or 14,000 feet of up. So the aerobic side of things, I think is even that much more important since there's not as much free gravity fed running and there's not going to be as much getting beat up, although you're still doing tons of downhill. I was just going to ask you, are there any specific workouts that I'll start to see in February that are designed to mimic the demands of the course? Like you mentioned that on the canyons course, for example, there's fairly frequent uphill and downhill changes. And so will any of, will will the nature of the course be reflected in the workouts that I'm doing in in February? Some of them, I don't, not necessarily in all, it's not like every workout we do is like, okay, how do we mimic the course? Like there'll be a lot of just hard work when it comes to like uphill, fairly hard uphill efforts when we're getting between, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 plus minutes of fairly high intensity work 
that's building your aerobic engine and your strength endurance on climbs, like not only be able to have that high end aerobic output for a long time, but to like also be able to back it up with like your, your muscle strength endurance, being able to like match your aerobic ability, like trying to match those two things. I think that some specific long run type workouts, like where we're trying to have you doing fairly hard things in a fatigued state, like we did last week. If people looked at your Antelope Island run from this weekend, I thought that was a great run. Obviously, I don't know if people looked at it. It was really well executed. You ran very consistent, not too hard of pace for those first couple hours. If you look at like your great adjusted paces on these trails, you're in the, the low eights for the most part, which is perfect. I think that's perfect, easy pace on those trails. And then you were able to bust out, you know, two by 15 minute tempos uh, in terrain on these trails, you know, in the 550 range, meaning like you fueled really well, you ran easy enough and you still had a pretty high end ability quite deep into what was the longest run so far. But what we'll see as we get like, and more into the meat of this training is that we'll try to extend that easy portion out longer and then have you running hot, longer duration, but not quite as hard of intensity, right? So, you know, you might have three, three and a half hours of easy pace before we get into 40, 50, 60, maybe even more like 75 or 90 minutes of like bit 100k pace right like you know this which is kind of a hard thing to define but it is easy your 100k pace is faster than that like 820 easy pace on a good day so we'll try to get more specific in that sense and have you probably doing some more run like antelope's great because there is runnable terrain out there but yeah, yeah runnable rolling up and down but where you really can open up and run a good clip on your easy pace before you get into some harder climbs because when you look at canyons the back end of that course it's like there's two really, really long grinding climbs that kill people in the very, very late stages. So like part of our goal is going to be to get you to those climbs capable of running, basically, because a lot of really good people will hike those. And if we can be running at the end, that's where you're going to move from 20th at mile 40 to the top 10 at mile 60. Just so I understand, what is the training stimulus that I'm getting from delaying the hard running on these long run days to late in the run, like in hour three, hour four, yeah. hour five? So like you're a, it helps you not run too fast early on. That's kind mm -hmm. of, gim I think it's gimmick. This is something, I mean, I don't know where this came from. I'm sure other people do it, but I kind of, I'm not saying I made it up, but it's something I think in my head. Okay. And if Finn knows, or, if, you know, other people who are like you, who are like, okay, if I just have a four hour run, I'm going to grind through most of it out of moderate effort or i can say all right like we want these higher intensity pieces pretty late which means don't go too hard at the beginning because if we have this let's say it's a four hour training run it's all grinded out at a moderate intensity where you're pushing all the time but you're not really pushing it you're not really getting that high end effort i think it grinds you down a lot more than we need it to and it can be more risky so if we like are pretty patient in the early parts of these runs i think it makes for a better run overall. It's a less risky paradigm week in and week out when we do make sure that you're having that easy compared to hard juxtaposition. And I would rather not have you do the hard at the beginning and then just slog out two hours of junk, you know, like you have really quality, easy pace miles. And then when you get to that late part, like you're going to be somewhat glycogen depleted. We're trying to push that your body's ability to store glycogen and use it sparingly at higher intensities when you're already on the lower end of uh, what readily stored glycogen that's what's left because you know like if you run 
let's say you run too hard in the early parts of the run, even if you fuel well, you might not be able to, to run any harder, right? You might just already be tapped at hour three or hour four. So it's like teaching you this patience and it's metabolically getting your body a lot more efficient. And that stimulus of that hard effort on a low glycogen state. Um, I mean, I think it does a lot. I think it can be risky too. Like if you do it too hard, too often, or if every time we do it, it's an all out slug fest, I think, you know, it can get risky, but you know, so far I think we've done pretty good and I think we will. I had never considered the mental component of why you structure the the quality <laughs> stuff towards the end, but it makes total sense because now that I think back to my run yesterday, we're recording this the Monday after the Antelope Island long run. All I could think about those first two hours was fueling, making sure that I had stores left over to use, holding back pace wise. I ran into a bunch of different guys and girls on the run that day and they were going at various paces. And there was a couple of scenarios where a couple of folks were pulling ahead. And I was like, I got to sit back. I got to sit back because I got to be ready for the quality in hour three. And so you said it teaching me patience. It totally reined me in. And if nothing else, it put me in a better position to have a holistically successful long run. That's a hundred percent. Right. I think there's a bunch of reasons. I mean, I think for the run itself and the stimulus that you ideally want to get out of most of these long runs, I think it helps a ton to have a pretty defined juxtaposition between the easy pace portion, which is most of it typically, and whatever we're doing that might be harder, whether that's some downhill work with uphills at the end. And there's different ways of doing these harder components. And I make up lots of different, you know, a lot of it is free form made up or like how I, how I think about creating it. I don't have a playbook that I just pull from, you know, but it, uh, like having a bigger difference. This is one thing that I'll stress, especially when some people want to run too hard on the easy parts. And then I say, all right, like I'll look at the difference between the pace on their, you know, let's say they had the identical run that you had two hours around two hours and then two by 15 minute pickup. They might have a very small difference, like say 30 seconds a mile at, or, or, or less in a grade adjusted basis, which isn't good, right? That means they were already tapped. Like they didn't have that much left. And this is something I'll try to use to show them, Hey, like that wasn't that, you know, that obviously wasn't that easy. You couldn't go any faster, but in your case, your grade adjusted difference between the easy portion and the hard portion was over two minutes a mile or two and a half. It was like two and a half. Yeah. Which is like, that's money. That's like what I like. Uh, and I think it's like a really good window into what it takes to run a good hundred K too. like this patience that you have to like exercise for sometimes a lot longer than you think, you know, you're like, you might get to mile 10 and get impatient at canyons, right? Like, Oh, I'm ready. Like I was patient. Now I'm going to start racing. You can, you can, you can still wreck your race at mile 30. You, Oh, I've done it. I've done it. My side, I can remember real specific instances where I was like, Hey, I did a really good job. Like perfect, perfect, perfect. And then blew it and didn't, didn't make it all the way. <laughs> uh, so like, I think these runs are, there's, they teach you a lot. And they, they help train your body and your mind to work in that way where you're having that patience and showing yourself like, Hey, like I can be pretty tired and still crank it out. And we're not going to see that in the hunt. You're not going to see that kind of pace profile in a hundred K, right? Like in the hundred K ideally, like you're just not slowing down. <laughs> That's the goal, you know, by mile, you know, 35, 45, 55, like if we're, you know, even pace, that's like about as good as anybody ever does. I'd like to review what the expectations were for the month of January, where we were successful, where there's room to improve, 
So we're coming off of a fall where you had a 50 miler. I want, I, I don't have this in my head very well, but it was in November. Yeah. And McDowell. Yeah. We did McDowell in December, CCC in September, two relatively big time on feet efforts. It was like 22 total hours between the two. Yeah. So we're not coming off of nothing, but we're also, we're coming off of like a good amount of work over the summer and the fall in big races. And we also had 16 weeks from the start of when I got involved, I started coaching you again. And I think that it's, especially with motivated people, it's really easy to get real gung ho and just not be patient enough when it comes to prescribing and executing the, the volume part. Like we can, you could, you could easily run more than I'm having you run so far. Would you feel that that's true? Yeah. Last year I averaged like 10 to 12 hours time on feet a week. Mm-hmm. And so far the first few weeks, I was like, let's, I wanted to be more like eight to nine and then to 10 and then we, and you were pretty close. Obviously if people looked at the training log, that first week looks a little funky just because you were, you had your cousin in town and you guys did a few just different things. Thanks and stuff, yeah. 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 So it looks a little different, but we were in the high fifties mileage wise. Um, I was super happy with the way that your workouts went. Like you really executed. Most of your easy runs were very well constrained and, and within easy pace a couple of them were like slightly more moderate which is fine it wasn't you know i'm not like that big of a stickler if sometimes you go out and run seven minute pace instead of seven thirties on the road or something like it's not that doesn't make that doesn't break your training it's like if you do that every day every day then it can grind you down the one thing that we talked about in our first coaching call i think was like how do we mix and match like getting training partners involved and what that looks like. How do those dynamics function? Like, are we going to do some of their, what's been really fortunate. You've had guys show up and do the workouts that I've written. And that's been part of the plan. And what we've seen is that like paces I've written based on like the fin that I, you know, I've coached over the years and the fin, I mean, I, I write paces based on what I know about you. And it's like, these guys show up and some of these guys are quite fast. They're faster than oh, yeah. you are at running like these 1200 meter cruise intervals or this Michigan's breakdown workout or the Hills we just did last week and this week. Anyways, like these guys show up and you run a lot faster than I would have expected you to. And I know you wouldn't have run that fast on your own. Uh, like if you just had gone out and done these workouts, let's say you were ready, you went out and you pushed yourself equally hard from a perceived effort standpoint, the paces would probably be 10 to 20 seconds a mile slower whether that's flat or like grade adjusted sort of basis. And I was just talking to one of my friends who's a college coach at a place called Portland state. He's like mm. a cross train track coach. And it's just funny reminiscing about like, you know, how huge that can be for people to get some of these breakthrough, not even moments, but periods of time where it's like, you just do things that you couldn't have done on your own that you didn't necessarily even think you were capable of. And yeah, it's maybe a little bit risky. Like maybe you're burning the candle too hot on some of these workouts, but we don't know. I don't think we know if it's too hot because we actually are seeing that, Hey, you're showing, it's not like it's a one hit wonder, like every week up, Nope. This is there. These workouts are there. And I've been super happy to see that we've been able to get people to work out with you and to show up week in and week out. And you're, you know, you're, overachieving basically on those workouts, <laughs> which maybe, that's, maybe that means you're, that's just, you are achieving. That's where you should be. And so I've tried to recalibrate. Okay. Well, obviously Finn is better than he has been before. It's exciting. And it's also a little bit risky, but I think it's totally worth it sort of risk to continue down this rabbit hole of having you work out with guys who are arguably 
better right now or better at these types of workouts. And I think that the flip side to that, that we have to keep doing, and you've done a pretty good job is like, you know, run some easy runs either with people who will run chill or you run them by yourself or whatever, and just really keep that hard, easy juxtaposition separate. You know, you know, the hard workouts almost force you to, cause like, if you run hard enough on some of those, you're going to be like, I'm happy to go run eight minute pace or eight thirty pace today on the flat ground. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. gone really well, I thought. And, it, and I'm, I'm excited to keep seeing that even if we have to mix in match or like, it doesn't always work out to get some of the crew, some of your guys to team up with you on them. Like it's stuff that we can audible or change. We can troubleshoot if we have to. And it doesn't mean every workout has to be like with the, with other guys, but I think it's an, an area worth continuing to pursue for you. So I'd like to keep doing that as we go forward. Cause I think that's really been obviously making a difference. I think one of the biggest revelations I've had in the last month is that there is a ceiling pace wise when you're alone. And then there's another ceiling pace wise when you're together. And there's a caveat to that last part. That ceiling is higher. If you are in an environment where maybe you're being from a skills standpoint, like on every single one of these workouts that I've done, yes, I'm having breakthroughs on paper, like on Strava, I'm setting all these PRs and whatnot, but what the audience might not see is every single person in that group workout is minimum hundred meters to 250 meters ahead of me on every single rep. And I'm getting absolutely destroyed. Like just absolutely destroyed. Like there's there's no on those 10 minute reps. Yeah. Oh, like on, oh yeah. There's just no positive feedback in the moment that anything I'm doing is a breakthrough. And the reason I want to bring that up is because I'm human. And just like anybody else, I'm subject to all of the fears of being a human. And there's this principle I keep coming back to called loss aversion, which basically says that we experience losses more severely than we enjoy gains. And if you can just hijack your mind and, and realize that that's actually good feedback when you're getting beat in those scenarios, you put yourself in position to, to really have the breakthroughs that we're talking about now. Yeah. So I would just encourage anybody listening, try to put yourself in as many scenarios as possible, where maybe you're a small fish in a bigger pond. There's incredible breakthroughs to be had. Yeah. And whatever fast mean, I'm doing air quotes here. Fast is so relative, right? One of the guys you're working out with is I, I looked up his name and it was like, oh yeah, he ran at Cal and he ran 1354 and he didn't do it very long ago. He's super young. So it's like, yes, this guy will run. He's run stuff in the last few years that is way beyond what you've done before. And, you know, but that guy will, you know, I guarantee in college, he showed up to races and workouts and he got his ass handed to him routinely as well. So it's just all part of the same paradigm, I think. And yeah, like in those workouts, like while you're like, okay, like I can't hang on that pace. You know, I, I think that you're grounded enough to not really let that get to you or it hasn't, it's not getting to you and it shouldn't like, anyway. So I, I think that that's, it was part of this. I was excited because I knew you had all these people like you could run and work out with someone any day of the week if you wanted basically out there so i'm excited to continue to pursue that because you have big goals for canyons and i think that that piece of your training will play a big role in that right it's like these hard workouts you don't do them every day it's not like what the entirety of the training is composed of but it's certainly a fun exciting part and <laughs> it does improve your aerobic system in a way that translates even over 100k uh, for sure well, yeah, I'm really excited and it's been fun. Is there anything else we want to cover before we go on to sort of this listener supported Q and a section? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what we'll look forward to in February, you know, like long runs will start to get a little more of an emphasis than they have in the first four weeks, which 
I did, I mean, that's on purpose. Like I didn't want you out going out running 30 mile long runs at all in this first four weeks. Like people start, people do too hard of stuff too, especially too big of long runs. I mean, it's fun. Those are great. We love long, big, tough, long runs. Like they're awesome, but they are, I would say they're like some of the stuff that you can overdo the easiest. So like, that's where I'm you know, holding you back to a certain extent, because I know it'll pay off. One of my favorite principles is that like, you know, you don't want to run your race in training, right? Like if your race is the canyons, you, you know, you want to get to the canyons as fit as possible, but as hungry as possible, like at the ideal intersection of fresh and fit. And it's pretty easy to like go out. And if you say you hammer, let's say we had you do, I don't know, four or five 30 plus mile long runs, some of them at harder paces and stuff like that. Like you could do it. Like if I put that on paper, there's a chance you would execute it. There's also a chance you get injured and there's a really good chance you'd get to canyons. Even if in your mind, you kind of tricked yourself and said, Oh, I feel pretty good. I feel good. Now, you know, you'd get there way less. You'd get there tired. You get there already on the downward slope of like, you know, you would have your fitness and ability might've peaked four weeks out. And like, I'm trying to avoid that because it's, you know, ideally we get there and you feel like, like, oh man, I could have done more. And I'd love you to get there and be like, oh, I could have done more in this training block. And I'm like, we're good. <laughs> I'm glad you could have done more, you know? So that's, we, we will see long runs increasing here, but like, I still want to, I think in February, I still have this like notion of like, we got to be a little bit careful too, because you could still blast it and, and, uh, and do things that kind of get you to canyons too fatigued. The quote, don't, run your race in training. I think a lot of folks should ponder that one. That is, that's, that's something really good to think about. I think a lot of us fall victim to that. Yeah. And some of these workouts, these higher end, higher intensity uphill tempos and all the different types of things that people have seen so far, people, uh, if people have been watching your harder workouts, like those are hard efforts. Like you can overdo it on those too. But I think that if you're smart about the how the volume that we're putting in on those and not necessarily turning everyone into a full blown race. Like it's easier to mess it up on the long runs, I guess, in terms of overdoing things. And I think uh, that's just something we're going to kind of be cognizant of. And especially when you're doing some of those with buddy, that's why I'm going to kind of keep the easy, hard juxtaposition, probably pretty, pretty well uh, dosed in there. Some of them won't have any hard stuff. Like some of the long runs will be straight, like all easy pace. We're not doing anything hard. And but yeah, we'll try to make those distinctions because I think it helps you to be clear about what you should be doing and, and to not be, and it, and it still keeps things tough and, and pushes you and, you know, and, and it does it in a dose that hopefully will not be too much. Basically. We didn't do this in the last coaching call. It's brand new uh, in between episodes. I, I put out a disclaimer on Instagram to drop any questions anyone had for future episodes. And we'll do two here. I think we have enough time for two. The first one is about coaching load and it's free form. So you can take it wherever you want. But one of our listeners is curious about how you handle the number of athletes you have, what you think is a good number generally in order to devote the required attention to each athlete. So take that wherever you want. But yeah, the first one there is about coaching load. Yeah. So, I mean, to, I guess you have to give some context, like not every coach is a full-time coach, right? Like for trails and tarmac and just in general, but like a lot of our coaches have other, have other jobs. So like, we're pretty intentional about like, Hey, like 
only we only want you coaching as many people as really makes sense for you. And so we never push people to like, you know, even if we've gotten busy enough, we're like, oh man, we're pretty close to full. And like, we don't have that much capacity right now. And, um, but I'm never going to be like, hey, I really got to force, you know, one of our coaches to take more people than they can. Um, but for me, I, this is what I do as a, as my full-time profession. And I have for going on seven years, actually. So, um, you know, I have other stuff going on. I train, I have kids, I have all these other things. So like I choose how many people to coach based on what I know works for my life. Right. So that's been a big part of it. And for the most part, that's been around 25 individual people. Um, and right now it's about that. It's like more like 28. It's about as high as I ever go. And people for sure coach more people than this. I mean, I've heard a lot of, it's pretty anecdotal, but I've heard of other, you know, people in the trail running coaching sphere, coaching 50, a hundred, gosh, I don't know. I've heard higher numbers and I kind of, my head, I'm like, I don't know. That seems crazy. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm sure they do it differently. Uh, and, and it's not to say that it can't work and, you know, um, but the way I do it, I write kind of a lot in terms of like the feedback that I give is usually, well, the way I, the way I think about the feedback is I just pretend that I'm talking to the person and I try to write, I can, and I'm actually really fast at typing. That's kind of how I hand, that's part of how I handle the load that I do as I like, like some old guy came up to me at the Starbucks. I was working in there the other day and he's like, man, you're really going to town on that thing. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like in the zone and just like, pounding on this keyboard, annoying everybody at Starbucks, I guess. Um, but I just, I write, uh, I try to write in a way that it's like just me talking to the person. So I'm not like sitting there trying to like go back and edit every single little typo, even like, I'm just like, you know what, I'm just writing and I'm trying to talk like, and so like I'll, I'll write fairly long form sort of whatever responses or, you know, comments, or we go back and forth sometimes and, and like the training I write isn't, we don't use like uh, a training platform that like incentivizes sort of like building a big workout bank and then pulling from those, which is makes, we thought about doing this, you know, our, as a coaching company, I considered using training peaks and another piece of software. I got way down the road. I know we did all these tutorials and like talked back and forth with these companies for a while. And at the end of the day, I just didn't like how it wasn't as customizable as a Google sheet. Like a Google sheet is the most customizable way of writing, I think. Um, anyway, so I guess that's giving some context to like why I stick to 30. Cause like I write custom training, like I said, I don't have copy and paste or any sort of other, like, even though it might make sense or you should just copy and paste some things. But I, for me, it's like, I think better if I'm just writing and I'm like looking at that person and thinking about what they're doing and, and having that, uh, not having the incentive to just be like, Oh, here's a, here's like a workout that I wrote, you know, two years ago, I'll just put that in there. Or here's like a whole week that looks good for this person. Like these are things that those systems allow you to do. Um, so I think if I, if I did it differently, I might be able to coach more people. Um, or I might choose to coach more people, but at the same time, it's like, you can only have so many people that you care about and that you're like, have in your mind. Even if like, technically I, I'm not like sitting at my computer 50 hours a week. Gosh, I, I wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> um, but even if like, you know, let's say I wanted to sit at my computer more and write more training and just, you know, make more money or whatever. Uh, 
I just don't think I can have 50 people in my brain. It's too many people for me to care about. <laughs> so I've, I've been working with you on and off for five years. You're the only coach I've ever had. So I am biased and I have a, a certain expectation of what I think a coaching relationship looks like. But at the same time, my network is incredibly undiverse and every, everyone that's a friend is basically also a runner. I've had the opportunity to access other people's training logs and to see what their relationships look like. And I don't see the same level of personalization, attention to detail, flexibility in real time, frequency of contact. And I think those variables matter a ton in coaching. And so I'll just give you a shout out there. I'm having you on the pod. So my biases are already known, but well, that just for me. we did not script that. I actually genuinely believe what I just said there. And I, I think your quote there, you can only have so many people to care about. That is extremely true. At least me. I, and I'm not saying every person or every coach, you know, they might have different capacities. Like I, mean, I think part of my deal is I've got a five-year-old and a one-year-old and that sucks up like I mean, that just sucks up a lot too. So it's like, man, if I, maybe if I lived in a different realm, maybe it would feel different, but I've, I've got to this point where I'm like, you know, like I, I've structured my, you know, life in a way where I'm like, okay, this amount of money and this amount of income works for us. And, and it works for, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it's the balance has kind of been struck yeah. for me. So I think other people might strike a totally different balance uh, and they might do it in totally, you know, different ways. I'm not trying to like, disparage some other way of doing it. Oh, but yeah. I think, yeah, that's how I handle it. I, and I'm really just like, I think one thing that can happen if you're working for yourself or you're coaching independently, or even if you're not independent, like there's not that much oversight, you can slack off pretty easily. Yeah. Um, and like, you could be like, oh, I'm just not going to, you know, you know, you could spend, someone could just not do anything for a week or more. You know, you could write a bunch of weeks of training for all your people and then like not do that much. Uh, I work, but I work really consistently, I guess. Like I don't work eight hour days. Like I never sit in front of the computer for eight hours. Like I just choose not to do that basically. So I, that's how I, well, I'm not going to do that. So I'll coach this many people, but then I'm really like I get on my computer at the same time. You know, most days I'm always working at similar time and, and typing fast. If I didn't type fast, I could coach. I wouldn't be able to coach as many people this way. Frankly, if I had like half the typing speed, I'd have to cut like, I don't know, six less athletes or something. <laughs> I'm just stoked about the coaching profession in our industry in general. Like I'm looking at a couple of books on my desk right now. One is called mental training for ultra runners by Addie Bracey, fellow oh. coach. It's, yep. it's awesome. I'm reading Coop's uh, second edition book. It's awesome. Uh, I listened to a science of ultra podcast with Sean Bearden the other day, like mm -hmm. the coaching industry and the profession is strong. So anyways, just want to throw that out there. I'm biased towards trails and tarmac, but everybody's good. It's all good. Oh, I think there's tons of really good coaches uh, and like lots of different, I don't know, different types of approaches. Like, I mean, some people might all have like post-grad degrees in exercise phys. And I think that there's merit to that. I'm, and I'll be the first to say that. I don't think every, I'm not going to say for every trails and tarmac coach that they don't have a post grad exercise fist degree, but I think most of us, most of us don't, most, our, our decisions have been based primarily on depth of experience and like breadth of experience. So like having done as much as possible within the realm of running and not just like an, in an ancillary way, but people who have run track for years and run road races for a lot run, basically run as much different types of stuff as you can for a very long time for people who are pretty young. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of, part of it and just picking people we really think are 
you know, really good people and that can relate to other humans well. <laughs> That's a huge part of it. And, and like people who can build relationships because that is, is quite important. But anyways, yeah, the coaching profession, like, I know this is one of the questions that you got is like, maybe like, what is the coaching profession going to look like down the road? I don't know. I've thought about this some too, because I keep, I'm like, man, I was worried about automation. I was a big Andrew Yang fan for anybody who was, oh, yeah. Uh, not that I'm trying to get into politics, but I know his, his talk about, you know, like, Hey, the world's changing super fast and it's hard to even predict the different ways that, that you're going to have to adapt and change. And I'm like, Oh man, someone's going to write these coaching scripts and these bots and your watch is just going to tell you what to do. And, you know, like it's going to have all the data and it's smarter than me. And it's going to be like, you know, I was like, well, maybe this is the way things will go. And I think that the world will get more and more. I don't know, smart and automated probably, but I don't see the, I don't see the personal relationship side of things and having a coach who can understand like how like so many different types of things connect when it comes to a person and a runner. And it's a really complex thing uh, being a runner and training as a runner for these mm. like races with just hundreds of variables. I don't know, not that I can synthesize it all, but a human brain's pretty good at synthesizing a lot of information and trying to put it together coherently, probably better than the app still. So I think we'll keep coaching around for a long time. I don't think the app, the apps or the bots or the algorithms are going to take over for a while, I hope. Let me, uh, let me ask you one more question before we head out. And I'll preface it by saying that this whole concept of trail running teams has been an incredibly hot topic in the ultra running media space. We had Sam Parsons on the podcast a couple months back, and he said that he's in contact with a bunch of people at Hoka and Hoka may be putting together a team sometime later this year. I mm. heard Dylan Bowman and Corinne Malcolm talk about it at, in their new year episode. It seems like it could take shape this year or at some point in time. And I'd love to approach it from the coaching side of things. If a co-located team came into existence at some point, how would you approach that from a coaching standpoint? Like how would it differ from the current way you coach athletes now? Cause I know you, you ran at the university of Southern Oregon in college. So you, you've had this experience. Would it look like that? Or what are you envisioning? Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it'll be really interesting. I think to preface like why this is probably happening, where, why it probably will happen in the trail running space soon is if you look at the road and track space, like the, I don't have like data on this off the top of my head, but there's so many more teams popping up, like brand sponsored teams in that space. Like there used to maybe only be a, I don't know. It seems like there's at least double, like you can see these brands for whatever reason, they've decided that the return on investment for these types of programs must be pretty good, or at least these marketing people think it is. So I think it's only a matter of time. Like you see this much happening in the road space. And I think that the trail space might be more right. Like the, whoever's the first mover, they'll get a pretty good bump pretty quickly. I think whether it's, a, and it'll probably be a brand as much as I wish it wasn't a shoe brand that was the basis for a team. Cause I don't think it's a great basis for a team, but it's just the way the funding works. Right. Uh, there's not like another mechanism because if you want to co-locate it, like you're saying, people all live in the same place and you have to somehow convince them to do it, which will take, you have to pay them to get people to actually do that. It doesn't have to be like a ton, but I don't know. I was running the numbers in my head. I think if you wanted a solid co-located 10 person team, maybe five men, five women, uh, 
with a coach on site and their racing and travel is obviously paid for at this level. I don't know. It's like $300,000 probably on an annual basis. Like some brand is probably, if they don't do that, then I think it won't work very well. But if you that, that's like on a kind of low end, like paying each one of the runners, maybe they're making like 10 to $20,000 each and their travels paid for and the coaches paid for. And maybe you figure out housing. Anyways, like I think that's what it would take to get something off the ground. Mm. I'm sure, I'm sure it will though. I'm sure that's not a crazy number for these brands. I don't think to build something like that. Are you a believer that being a part of a team, like if there was a trail team to exist, there would be significant performance benefits and does an in-person coach have a role to play in that benefit? Uh, yeah. I, well, I would say a coach is going to, yeah, I think there's potentially huge benefits, but it's all about the execution. Like if you just said, all right, we're all, you know, part of this, whatever, t- pick your brand trail team. And we all move to, I don't, I would say don't move to Boulder. I don't know, but <laughs> whatever town it is, maybe Salt Lake, Salt Lake would be a great option, probably somewhere that's at altitude, maybe Park City. You all move there. But if you don't figure out how to get that team to coalesce around like this identity and to coalesce around like being bigger than the sum of its parts, like if you're just a bunch of individuals wearing the same jersey and like the coach is individually coaching each person, I don't know. I don't think you get that much out of that. But if you say, hey, like we're going to really we're going to all be bought into the same magic sauce here and we're all going to like do like maybe we're all going to do whatever, say UTMB, you know, like they're all going to have these two or three or four key races and they're mostly going to do the same stuff and eat and drink and sleep, and breathe the same air and just become like one sort of unit. Uh, oh, it would make it, it would be unreal. It would be unreal. But I think it's hard when you have a bunch of 20 to 40 year olds, you know, it's different than college kids. It's easy to get college kids to, to buy in and to all be on that same path together. But it, I don't know. I hope it happens because it would be super fun. Like, me think I think of it myself. I'm like, part of me would love to be an athlete on that team still. Like I'm still in this athlete mode in my mind, like <laughs> where I'm like, yeah, like yeah, that would be amazing. And then part of me is like, well, you should be a coach in that realm. I don't know. I can't, I couldn't pick which one I would rather be. <laughs> and maybe you have to name the team after the ultimate goal as well. So for example, the winning UTMB project where everybody <laughs> who's on the team, it's just win UTMB or bust, or just get as many Americans, male and female on the podium as possible for that year. And if you get nobody on, you failed. And if you got a couple on, that was awesome. It's like with the Nike Oregon project, like their goal is to bring medals back to the U S. Yep. Yep. I, know, I, I, I do like example. I like that shoot for the moon sort of example. I think it is amazing though. Like even, so when I, I was on the Nike trail team when it was like, it's, when it was first born in its modern iteration, so I think it was like 2014. I know there's not like there's like a big team aspect in trail running, but I did try to make a push for it at that time. And I was on this Nike team and I'm like, okay, this is sick. We have a bunch of cool, and I, I didn't really know the people that much, but I remember sending this email to all the Nike trail team at the time. Like we were, there was a bunch of us running Lake Sonoma and I was like, okay, we all got to go to Sonoma and just basically crush the shit out of this race and do it as a team. And I sent the video of all these killer whales, like potting up to like knock a seal off of an iceberg. You know how they do that. It takes all of them. They can't do it. They need to make yeah. it. Yeah. Together. It was awesome. We did have a really, I think we went like one, four, five, six or something. That's the- awesome. And it was super fun. Even if it didn't really matter, it felt different. And I think even if you ask some of those guys who were there at that time, I think they all felt it was like a little bit of a taste of what that 
team emotion it's like yeah but it hasn't happened that often i don't know maybe people feel it maybe some of the solomon runners they all go get together and go do those camps and stuff but i just i don't i haven't seen it i, I haven't seen it with my own eyes and trail running really yet but it would be cool it would be really really big difference well to bring it back full circle when we were talking about performance and outcome goals at the beginning of the show there's seven of us training for Canyon's hundred K here in Salt Lake. And it's almost like the perfect number for a cross country team. And I think that that goal I have of being on like the back end of the top 10, I see myself as like the seventh guy in our training group. And there's all that pride of showing up as like the anchor or whatever that position is on a team. Yeah, and you gotta be a number, you gotta be the top five, five man. That's, I was five always, man. that's who scores top five score in cross country. Actually, I was just running with my brother yesterday and we were talking. I think what we really need in trail running someday is a state-based team event where it's like you, each state that wants to participate has its own sick jersey. Like all the states make their own jerseys and it's like you score five. You know, if you could do it, like you'd score five and have, uh, you know, Oregon versus Washington versus Utah. I mean, I don't know, take your pick, but I think that that, would really get, I think that like the fans would be way more excited about, I don't know, participating and rooting in that event than they, because I mean, they don't care that much about the fans. They care more about the state, I think. Mm. Uh, mm. I mean, it, I don't know how you, that event would have to get created out of some, out of the ether somehow, but it would be super cool. I like that a lot. You've I like got, that a lot. You've got this going for you in canyons. You've got a Utah team. I don't know if other, I don't know if any other state has a legitimately good team. <laughs> we do. Well, I, I kid you not. When you said on the podcast, and I'll, I'll link to the episode in the show notes, when you said that you guys have a good thing in Salt Lake going, and if you don't organize that and, and make that further come to fruition, you messed up because the opportunity was there. I think a, that fired up a ton of people. I see it. It's happening. It's already happening. I can see it from afar. I don't even know all these guys, but like when I look on Strava, I'm like, oh yeah, this is happening. I mean, it does, it's not overnight, but it's definitely something is happening there. We want, we want Salt Lake in 2023 to be what Mill Valley was in 2015 or what Ashland was in 2010 or what Flagstaff was in 2018. That's the goal. What it probably takes is like, well, why was flag? Why did flag hit it big? It's because they had gym, right? <laughs> They had Jim and then all these other guys were also very good, right? Like they're not, all of them were great, yeah, but if there's yeah. no Jim, I don't think there's a flag, you know, from like that standpoint. So like maybe what it's going to take for Salt Lake to kind of rise to the top, so to speak, is you got to have your low stick and then all the people filling in behind them. I don't know who your low stick is, but I mean, I know you've got some, I mean, Castales is obviously super good. Jimmy's super good. Yeah. Anthony Castales would be an amazing anchor. Jimmy Elam, as you just mentioned, the guy who ran 1350 something at Cal Garrett uh, Corcoran. I was just talking with him offline. He's like, dude, it's so funny. Like I used to beat Adam Peterman at all of these NCAA races. And here he is breaking Jim's course record at speed goat. And right. I'm running an hour and a half slower. Like it's a different ball game and he's motivated. And that's a guy I would encourage the, the world to watch out for. Cause if he can flip the switch and uh, convert that NCAA speed, he's going to be dangerous. Yeah. No, I mean, obviously, I mean, I think that's the thing you have, like, you have a big wave of energy. And I, it'll be, I think you're right. That should be your goal. If you're a Salt Lake, I don't know. I'm like living vicarious. I'm like, oh, I'm like a, I wish I was a Salt Lake runner. No, I like, I like where I live, but you know, you guys have some really good opportunities. And I mean, on an individual level, you're all going to get better because of it. And I think that's like what makes teams so cool. It's like, it helps Finn Melanson 
reach its potential like right. that you wouldn't have without the team. Right. I think this is the perfect place to put a pin in it. I always enjoy our monthly chats and it's been such a pleasure to work together this month again, resuming our relationship and we'll check back a month from now at the beginning of March. Yep. I think February is going to be a big month. Everyone watch, check Vince, you know, Finn's putting himself out there. You can see his, look at his training, check his Strava. You'll see what he's doing and we'll keep him on it here. I'm excited for your uh, build up here. It's been really fun so far. Until next time. Talk soon, coach. All right. See you, Finn. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you are looking for a coach, I highly recommend at least getting in touch with Ryan and the team at Trails and Tarmac. You can either email them at info at trailsandtarmac.com or fill out a contact form on their website, trailsandtarmac.com. We will be back at the beginning of March with another episode of this series. Until then, you can follow my Strava where I've also dropped the spreadsheet the quote-unquote training log for these next four months just type in finn melanson that's f-i-n-n-m-e-l-a-n-s-o-n in the strava search bar i'm pretty sure i am the only one talk to you soon